You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you. So, uh, this summer's sermons have been connected by the theme, Conformed to the Image of God's Son, Jesus. This is part of the story that God is telling. God's plan for his people is to bring us into unbroken fellowship with him and all of God's children will grow to look like Jesus. So last week, Pastor Brad reminded us from Psalm 51 how crucial repentance is to growing to look like Jesus. My name is David. I'm creative arts director and I am uh, have the privilege of preaching this morning. So today I want to reflect on Romans 12, 1 and 2 and the relationship of mercy, worship, and transformation. So feel free to turn there or swipe there with your Bible. Romans 12, 1 and 2. The text is also in the digital bulletin or in the printed one that you received. So you can find that on our website or on Faith Life as well. But to reiterate our theme, we are conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, with the people of God. We are conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and with the people of God. This is what Paul's letters in the New Testament, letters addressed to churches and leaders of churches, shows us. The Scripture continually reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit's power that's at work in us, and the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the transformative truths of God's Word, which we read and celebrate and enact in the context of God's people, the church. In our case, the local church of Grace Community Church. So Romans 12 picks up this theme right at its pivot point. So let me outline how that works. The context of Romans is important. And so it's important to remember that it's a Greco-Roman family letter. So has anybody taken time during this quarantine to handwrite anything? As easy as texting or emailing may be, there's something deeply human about taking time and using your hands to craft a message on a physical media to share with somebody. That was a good catch, iPad. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome when he hadn't been there yet uh, to encourage the Jewish and Gentile believers there with reminders of the gospel they'd received. So Paul greets folks at the beginning and at the end, and he presents an argument in three parts, an explanation of God's justice and Christ's sufficiency, an explanation of the relationship of Israel and the church, since there are Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome trying to learn how to live together despite their ethnic differences, and finally, the ethical implications of God's justice and Christ's sufficiency, or how should we live? In light of this good news, the letter to Romans is one of the most significant biblical books in Christian history. Augustine heard a child singing, take up and read. I don't know how the melody would go or I'd try to sing it. And then he opened scripture to Romans 13. And he had a conversion experience that's the catalyst of Augustine's confessions. Martin Luther was deeply moved by the gospel as it's articulated in Romans, especially the truth that the just shall live by faith. 
So Romans was an anchor for his theology that would spur the Protestant Reformation. Karl Barth sat under an apple tree, and as he read the gospel in Romans, he was compelled to write one of the most important commentaries and theological works of the 20th century. Some of you may have learned the Romans road as an evangelism tool, or you may recall Romans 1.16, or 8.28, or any number of important verses, memorable passages that are in this letter. Our text today comes from the third section, if you will, of the argument. Romans 12 through 15 is a necessarily connected piece. It's all the result of responding to the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. How then should we live? Like this. In Romans 12 through 15, these chapters give implications for how you love yourself, how you love your family, how you love your neighbor, how you engage with political spheres, with the law, with your enemies, and even with weaker brothers and sisters in the local church. Paul doesn't leave much to conjecture here. In 12 through 15, the principles of Christian living, of living like Jesus, are outlined for us. So thank God for the treasure of his word. Take and read. So our text for today, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have to admit that one of the first things that I notice about this text uh, is the amount of commas in here. So in the Greek, there are no commas or punctuation. This is something that the English translators insert to help us. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate a good comma, and so does grandma. You've seen or heard that joke about how commas save lives, right? It's the difference between let's eat grandma and let's eat comma grandma. In this case, the commas may distract us from the ways these phrases are actually all connected together. So I'll begin with mercy, then clarify our worship, then celebrate transformation that we find in these verses. First, mercy. In verse one, there are several significant connectors. So the word therefore reminds us that you can't just cherry pick this verse because it has some cool phrases. It is necessarily connected to the 11 chapters before it. Paul's appeal here is based on all he's just outlined regarding God's justice and the nature of his people. So as a reminder of what this means, Paul ends chapter 11 with, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So now, Christian, because of this God and his mercy, I appeal to you. I urge you. Now, by the mercies of God. So this prepositional phrase can be tricky in translation. So I've already talked about commas. 
but how many of you remember diagramming sentences? So here's all those comments with this phrase right in the middle. So does this phrase, by the mercies of God, connect to Paul's appeal or to our presentation of our bodies? If you've listened to Pastor Brad preach, you know that it's yes, it's both. I have no idea how you diagram that. But the way the Greek flows, that's really what's happening here. God's mercies are the context for Paul's urging and for our response. Paul is urging us by God's mercy, and we're to present ourselves by God's mercy. Isn't that beautiful? Mercies in the plural is a figure of speech. They're not individual mercies that we may distinguish, but rather God's mercy manifests in so many variations. His mercy is new every morning of every day of your life. He has mercy for all the foolishness that you've been involved in, all the shenanigans you've pulled, and all the pain and hurt that you've caused others. He shows mercy every single time we need it because of Jesus. And if you have known mercy, if you've experienced mercy, it pays itself forward. How can we not extend mercy because of the great mercy we've received? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And God desires to manifest his mercy through you. That's where the sacrifice part comes in. So I just listened to a podcast about living sacrifice, the foundational 90s Christian metal band. And really, that's the perfect Christian metal band name, right? Living Sacrifice. With Striper being a close second by his stripes, right? Now, those are two different kinds of metal, but I digress. In the Greek, it actually reads, a sacrifice that is living and acceptable and holy and pleasing. All these things are together, but it's sacrifice that is living, so remember that Paul is writing to the Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome, right? So Jewish folks would have a certain image in mind when sacrifice is brought up. And Gentile folks would have a slightly different image in mind. The similarities would be that a sacrifice is something that's killed to appease the deity. The difference would be the stipulations and benefits of the Old Testament that Jewish believers grew up with contrasted with the pagan practices of Roman and Greek temples around the Mediterranean. Paul hits both with this metaphor. So we're no longer told to sacrifice the life of something else. You sacrifice your own life, but not by dying, not by spilling your blood on the altar, because that's already been done for us in our place. There's only one sacrifice made once for all that's pleasing to the Lord. Because of what Jesus did that we celebrated at the table, our sacrifice is living because he died in our place. Because of what Jesus did, our sacrifice is holy. He has set us apart. Because of what Jesus did, our sacrifice is pleasing. Our lives of worship are now led by Jesus, whose worship is perfectly pleasing to the Father. I should have used a three-ring binder. We make our sacrifice by being buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. We live as a perpetual 
sacrifice. So remember Psalm 51 from last week? What does God really require? In response to David's sin, God did not ask for a sacrifice or a burnt offering. He wanted David's broken and contrite heart, broken over his sin, yet still beating. This was David's sacrifice of repentance. And as our text reminds us, being a living sacrifice is our spiritual worship. So because of God's mercy, we worship. Again, going back to the original language in the Greek, we find an important translation issue that you may have noticed if you're using a different English translation. I've been reading from the ESV. But this word spiritual can also be translated reasonable or rational. It's the word logikos in Greek. Logical. So spiritual, logical, rational, that means that it, it follows based on what God has done in Christ and who he's created us to be, that we would respond with our whole selves. It makes sense. If you've received so great a mercy that you would respond with your whole life. Epictetus, the first century Stoic philosopher said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am logikos, meaning a rational being, so I must praise God. Our worship, our gathering in this heat, our songs sung together and separately, our prayers in secret and at the table, our willingness to prefer others over ourselves, our sacrificial love for the people of God and for the stranger, our care for the fatherless and for the widowed, that's not crazy talk. It's only reasonable in light of the God who is our Father, who has adopted us, who has given us a home, whose Son left a throne to die in our place, who sees all sin and every sin and loves us. How could we know this, experience this, and live otherwise? In verse 1, I think it is no mistake that we find the term bodies, not hearts. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The body necessarily includes the heart, of course, but Paul doesn't say, invite Jesus into your heart, which is a common evangelical shorthand for making a profession of faith. You don't find that language in Romans, however. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth a bodily action. Paul is telling followers of Jesus that to be conformed to the image of God's Son means your whole self will be conformed. Your heart, mind, and strength. Your body and all that it contains, which includes your heart and your mind. So let me take a brief tangent here. We are not just brains on sticks. I think, therefore, I am philosophy has infiltrated some of the ways we imagine things to be. But we are not just thinking things. We have desires, affections, hungers. We're more than brains on sticks. So to be conformed to the image of Jesus means all of us is to be conformed. Our brains and our bodies and our affections and desires. Sometimes we form our bodies based on our brains. 
If we think a certain way, we'll behave a certain way. If I think I need to avoid sunny skies this week, my body will not hit the turn signal as I drive by on my way home from the office every day. Sometimes we form our brains based on our bodily behaviors. I don't think myself to sleep. I put my body in the right posture for sleep, and sleep happens to me. God knows this about us. He formed us in the womb. He dreamed up exactly how beautiful and complicated humans would be. He also designed us to be embodied beings with the promise of a body for the rest of time when creation is made new. So this reminder in 12.1 that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice is a way of practicing now what we will do in his presence. When we can see a physical bodily thing, when we can see the light that flows from his throne, when we can touch the hands that were nailed to the cross for us, of course we will worship him. It's the logical, rational response to his glory. While we wait for that time, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The author of Hebrews continues this theme, saying in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In verse 2, we move quickly to what reads like a command. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. However, neither of these are active verbs. How do you like this morning's grammar lesson? These are not active verbs. How crazy is that? That means you don't do a thing. Rather, you let a thing happen. Either you let yourself be conformed or you let yourself be transformed. So I don't know about you, but I actually want to have a checklist of things I can do to make things better. That's part of my wiring, of course, as an Enneagram 3, but sometimes I just want God to tell me what I need to do to move forward, to make him love me more so I can achieve more. Did you catch that? That's not the gospel. <laughs> I participate with God in a relationship, but I don't do the transformative things. God does. Rather, we should cultivate formative practices and postures so that God can do the transformative work, which will keep us from being conformed to the world. We should cultivate formative practices and postures so that God can do the transformative work, which will keep us from being conformed to the world. Now, when I read the world, I think about it as a social imaginary which is a philosophical term for the implicit way the world works when we're not thinking about it. It's the way that we all imagine the world is supposed to be. It's that picture of the good life that just popped up in your mind's eye when I said that phrase. It's the story that we feel like we're a part of, the story we tell and the ways that we live and all functions in the backgrounds of our minds. So the world, or this age, to use another biblical phrase, tells us one story, of what it means to be a flourishing human. But the true story of reality, which is part of the gospel, is often starkly different from the story that the world is telling. 
we see the differences when it comes to honesty, authenticity, love, sex, money, ethics, religion, community. Jesus embodied these things very differently than the world at his time. And Paul is reminding the church at Rome and the Holy Spirit is reminding us in this field in Anger and online that God has made us a people for his own possession. And he is shaping us to live in fellowship with him for the rest of time. So don't be shaped by failing narratives or false advertising from our culture, but be reshaped from the inside out to look like, sound like, and love like Jesus. Don't buy into the story of the good life that the world is telling. It will conform you into its systems of power, but be transformed by the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. So how are we transformed? By the renewal of our minds. But what does that mean? Paul actually doesn't say here. But remember the therefore. It's there to remind us of Romans 1 through 11. The Holy Spirit of God, through the word of God, brings transformational renewal. Our minds are renewed by the Spirit as we respond to the gospel and live into the gospel's picture of the good life. It transforms us and confirms for us the beautiful picture of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what struck me about these two verses together. When we don't pick one over the other, but read them in context together, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, practicing postures and actions of worship without a renewed mind will potentially lead us to legalism or even Pharisaism. But having a renewed mind or right theology, whatever that means, uh, without any embodied responses to God's mercy is fruitless. It's a branch that needs to be pruned. So I talked with my friend David a few weeks ago. It's similar to what appears to be a contradiction in the New Testament epistles. Some folks may pit the theology of Paul and James against each other. The letter to the Ephesian church and the letter penned by James are not in opposition. They're saying the complementary sides of the same truth. In Ephesians, Paul says it's by faith we are saved, not by works. And James says our faith will be evidenced by our work which has been prepared beforehand by God for us to accomplish in his power anyway. So we need both the inward experience of faith and a regenerate heart and the outward expressions of it. We need both Romans 12, 1 and 2 as the theological foundation for all the truth we'll then find in the rest of chapter 12, which I would encourage you to read this week. Read chapter 12 and keep going through 15. This is the fruit of, of someone who's experienced God's mercy. These are descriptions of a Christian, someone who's being conformed to the image of Jesus. We are conformed to the image of God's son, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, with the people of God. When we rightly remember the mercies of God in and through our worship of God, we cultivate a renewed mind which is already ours in Christ Jesus. We were created for unbroken fellowship with God the Father, which only Jesus the Son currently enjoys. But we are being conformed to the image of Jesus while we wait for the new creation. By his mercy, 
let us worship and be transformed. Would you stand with me as I pray for you and then you receive the benediction? God, would you be glorified as we exalt Jesus, both gathered and scattered? Would you establish us in the truth of your word as we spend time with you through it? May your Holy Spirit urge us, compel us to tell the true story of the good life, the gospel, to every person that we might have the opportunity to do. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you remain standing? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.